Noam Chomsky is not only a major Western philosopher, he's a major thinker of the left. In one way or another, he spent most of his life in the struggle against oppression, against greed. There are at least three things I see to put about the further swim. One, in philosophical terms, is a rationalist. He believes there are certain kinds of knowledge available to folk right at birth, that is, before the Fideni experience gained from living in the actual world. At this present time, he seems the best, most comprehensive way of explaining how it is we're able to know and understand things in the way that we do. Two, as a committed thinker of the left, he insists on discussing politics at almost every opportunity, not only in conversation, but on the page. He's as likely to publish an article in the secretive and murderous affairs of state, in particular the US state, as he is to publish an essay in philosophy or aspects of transformational grammar. The third reason I want to point to is the way he uses his own skills to break down information. It's not too difficult to imagine the effect of this established authority, both academic and otherwise, even at a basic level. I mean his colleagues and peers, those who share the usual career preoccupations of job security and accumulation of personal wealth. Most so-called experts seem to look in their own specialised field of study as a piece of property anyway. In terms of this event, I think it's informality and unofficial nature has put someone off. Maybe they've gone in a huff. Maybe they wanted a personal invitation or a brass band to play on the stairs from Governor Sobby's <laughs> The third reason I was pointing to why Noam Chomsky can be considered subversive has to do with the dissemination of knowledge. The tremendous range of work he does in spreading information, just getting things known to the public at large. It's his position that everybody can know. Unless we're mentally ill or in some other way mentally disadvantaged, all of us have the analytic skills and the intelligence to attempt an understanding of the world. It just isn't good enough to be bad at mathematics. The skills demanded of an elderly person playing several hands of bingo. The skills demanded to get to the supermarket and do a weekly shop in a limited budget for a large family of young kids. All these skills are there to be developed and applied to any subject whatsoever including subjects like a country's foreign policy or nearer home, the correlation between cuts in welfare and infant mortality, between cuts in welfare and suicide, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, prostitution, madness. Central to his thesis, and I'll quote here, there is no body of theory or significant body of relevant information beyond the comprehension of the layman which makes policy immune from criticism. No one here I think have any illusions about how political that can be. It's probably the basic premise in most countries of the world everybody can't know. There's always a risk of sounding paranoid when you criticise the way information and knowledge is relayed by the mainstream media. Generally speaking, they operate on a, basic, a basis similar to imperialism. If they don't discover you, then you don't exist. Once they do discover you, they turn you into a colony. What they do is provide you with their own context and then they give you a name. Take a local example, one Derek mentioned, how the city of culture business operates. It means that any piece of art, no matter the medium created by any artist in Glasgow, is instantly transformed into a piece of packaged property. What happens is you can't exist beyond the context, the context they've designed for you. It applies across the board. Even this event can't avoid the tarnish. 
no matter that we've taken pains not to be associated with it. Because it takes place in Glasgow 1990, it takes place in the city of culture context, you can be for it or against it, but you don't transcend it unless maybe by silence or beginning to exile. There's never really been a time when censorship and suppression didn't exist in this country. Information has always been withheld. Specialised knowledge has always been mystified. In the mainstream media, names like John Pilger are an exception, and exceptions only prove the rule. It's always been right in front of our nose. If we haven't seen it, it's because we either haven't looked or else we're operating on that basis of intellectual myopia, which Noam Chomsky essays on so accurately and cruelly. It's because of the fact of media suppression and distortion that other channels of communication must be available. The need for them has to be assumed. It's just a waste of time to argue about it. The same applies to other forms of knowledge. When I was at university as a mature student myself, I had to study some of Noam Chomsky's early work in linguistics. His political writings were not part of the curriculum. Why was that? One reason is that politics isn't relevant to the study of language. Our educational system operates in a system of specialist segregation. Literature for the literature department, linguistics for the linguistics department, politics for the politics department, and so on. Once you finish school, college, or university, you're encouraged to stop learning. You're supposed to stop finding things out. You're trained to leave intellectual matters to the experts, even existence itself. You're trained to leave the living of your life to those who specialise in such concepts. The folk who are paid by the state, they won't quite live your life for you, but they'll determine how it should be lived. They'll let you know what's possible and what isn't possible. The situation of being a child in society is appropriate here. The expert as parent. But so too is the situation of a group or class or an entire race of people under domination or colonisation, external or internal. Folk who can't determine their own existence because they're held in thrall. The right to self-determination has been taken from them by those in power and is kept from them, often by force, often by calculated violence. As I remember, the Free University Project was started by assuming the power of those in control. We didn't have to argue it out. We wanted a network based on the free exchange of ideas and information, a network of shared experience, shared energy, material resources, a network based on alternative forms even of movement, so that an event like this, for example, people could come from all over and get a crash somewhere. Ways of supporting each other and trying to live your own life. Define your own context, your own existence. There are folk present today whose commitment to social change has meant they've had to face up to various degrees of harassment, even personal danger. Folk who are unable to raise their family within the traditions and customs of their own culture. Folk who can't even live in their own country. Noam Chomsky is wary of links being made between his work in linguistics and his work in politics, and he gives good grounds for it. As he said himself in a recent interview with Radical Philosophy, Obviously, one can't infer anything about politics from what you know about universal grammar, or conversely. Yet there is something implicit in the very fact of our existence as human beings, and that is freedom, the right to self-determination, the right to not be tortured, and the right to not be raped, the right to not be violated, the right to not be colonised in any way whatsoever. From my own reading of Noam Chomsky's work, that's his position, that either we do battle, and that basic principle of freedom, or we don't. And I'd like to introduce him to help him again.
in his uh, illuminating study of the Scottish intellectual tradition, George Davy, who I think is here, uh, identifies its central theme as a recognition of the fundamental role, I'm quoting, of natural beliefs or principles of common sense, such as the belief in an independent external world, the belief in causality, the belief in ideal standards, and the belief in the self of conscience as separate, as separate from the rest of one. Now these principles are sometimes held to have a regulative character, though they're never fully justified. Uh, they provide the foundations for thought and conception and action. Uh, some have held in the past that they contain what's called what he calls an irreducible element of mystery. Others have hoped to provide a rational foundation for them, uh, and on that issue, the jury is still out. Uh, we can trace ideas of that kind to 17th century thinkers who reacted to the skeptical crisis of that period uh, by recognizing that there are no absolutely certain grounds for knowledge, and never will be, but that we do nevertheless uh, have ways to gain a reliable understanding of the world uh, and to apply that understanding to inquiry and daily life. That's essentially the point of view of the working scientist, and it's also the point of view of the reasonable human being uh, who relies on the natural beliefs of common sense while recognizing that they may be too parochial uh, and they may be misguided and hoping therefore to refine and alter them through reflection and experience as understanding progresses. That's a common sense, ordinary life analog of the standpoint of any working scientist. Uh, Davy credits David Hume, uh, another local boy, with providing this particular cast to Scottish philosophy, and more generally, with uh, having taught philosophy the proper questions uh, that it should be asking. Uh, there's one puzzle that Hume raised, which is particularly pertinent to the topics that we're going to be discussing here in the next several days. Uh, this is in his First Principles of Government, where Hume raises the following question. He says that he finds nothing more surprising than to see the easiness with which the many are governed by the few, and to observe the implicit submission with which men resign their own sentiments and passions to those of their rulers. When we inquire into the means by which this wonder is brought about, we shall find that as force is always on the side of the governed, the governors have nothing to support them but opinion. Tis therefore on opinion only that government is founded, and this maxim extends to the most despotic and most military governments, as well as the most free and the most popular. Uh, I'll refer to this as Hume's paradox as I proceed, and I want to comment on it. Now, there's one questionable feature of Hume's paradox, quite obviously, and that is the idea that force is on the side of the government. Uh, reality is more grim than that. Uh, and a good part of human history uh, supports the contrary thesis that the power of the sword is and ever has been the foundation of all titles of government. Uh, 
It's the theme floating thesis put forward a century, century before Hume by advocates of the rule of parliament against the king, but more crucially, uh, the rule of parliament against the people. Uh, nevertheless, Hume's paradox has a strong element of reality to it. It's true that even despotic rule is quite commonly founded on at least a measure of consent. And the abdication of rights is the hallmark of more free societies, which is certainly a fact that cries out for analysis. The harsher side of the truth, which Hume ignores in these remarks, uh, is clarified by the successes and also by the tragedies of the popular movements of the past decade. In the Soviet satellites, the governors had ruled by force, not by opinion. And when force was withdrawn, the fragile tyrannies quickly collapsed, virtually without bloodshed. Uh, that's quite a remarkable fact. It's a sharp departure from the historical norm. In fact, it's hard to think of, a, of an analog. I can't think of a similar case in history. Uh, now these, uh, these departures from the norm uh, 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 the, the normal case in history, throughout modern history, there have been plenty of cases. That's the main thrust of modern history. There have been case after case when popular forces that are motivated by a kind of radical democratic thrust uh, have organized and struggled to combat autocratic rule. And sometimes they have, in fact, succeeded in expanding somewhat the realms of freedom and justice before they're brought to heel, uh, as they always are, uh, but uh, often they're simply crushed. Uh, the, what has so far happened in Eastern Europe, where established power has simply withdrawn in the face of popular uprising, that is really extremely rare. And no less remarkable in this case is the behavior of the reigning superpower, which not only did not intervene by force, as it has regularly done in the past, but even encourage these developments alongside of internal changes. Again, this is a dramatic departure from the historic norm. Uh, the historic norm is illustrated much more clearly by the dramatically contrasting case uh, of the popular struggles in Central America during the last decade, as often before. Uh, there, every popular effort to overthrow the brutal tyrannies of the oligarchy and the military is met with murderous force supported by the ruler of the hemisphere. Uh, Ten years ago, there were some signs of hope or an end to the dark ages of misery and repression there. Uh, there was a proliferation of self-help groups, of uh, unions, uh, peasant associations, and others, uh, popular organizations that might have led the way to democracy and social reform. And this prospect elicited a stern response by the United States and its client states and its allies, supported by its allies, such as Great Britain uh, and others, uh, with uh, slaughter and terror and general barbarism uh, on a scale that's reminiscent of Pol Pot. Uh, this violent Western response uh, left societies which are, I'm quoting now, affected by terror and panic, collective intimidation and generalized fear, 
and internalized acceptance of the terror, including the Salvadoran church, uh, well after the shameful elections that were held to satisfy the consciences and the propaganda needs uh, of the masters. Uh, early efforts in Nicaragua to direct resources to the uh, needs of the poor majority led Washington to initiate uh, economic and ideological warfare alongside outright terrorism to punish these transgressions by reducing life to the zero grade. Now that's the norm. Uh, Western opinion regards these consequences, uh, the consequences of reducing societies to uh, uh, internalized acceptance of the terror and uh, vile collective intimidation and generalized fear, that's all regarded in the West as a success uh, insofar as the challenge to power and privilege is rebuffed uh, and uh, the threat of democracy is suppressed, and of course, insofar as the targets are properly chosen. So it's considered not clever to uh, murder priests, but union leaders uh, and uh, human rights activists are fair game. And of course, the same is true of peasants and students uh, and Indians and other low life generally. Uh, the pattern actually is quite uniform. Uh, so today, US troops in Panama uh, have been ordered to arrest most union leaders and political activists and when the occasional reporter uh, asks them what it's all about, uh, the answer is, quoting, those are bad guys of some sort. Uh, the good guys are the ones to be restored to power, are the bankers uh, who were happily laundering drug money in the early 1980s. Uh, at that time, Noriega was also a good guy, running drugs, uh, killing and torturing and stealing elections, uh, as we wanted him to do and crucially following American orders. Uh, he had not yet shown the dangerous streak of independence that transferred him uh, from the category of good guy to the category of demon. Uh, and apart from tactics, uh, nothing has changed over the years, including the inability of educated opinion to look at two plus two and to draw the conclusion four from that calculation. Uh, Central America represents the historical norm, not Eastern Europe, uh, and Hume's observation uh, about force being on the side of the government, that requires this rather crucial correction. Uh, recognizing that fact, it nevertheless does remain true and important that to a large extent government is founded by, on opinion, uh, and that that opinion leads to a kind of willing submission, more willing in more free societies like ours. Now, in the contemporary period, uh, Hume's conception has been revived and it's been elaborated, but with a rather different twist. The contemporary version in political science, journalism, and so on, where people write and think about these things, the contemporary version is that control of thought is more important for a free and democratic society than it is for a despotic society. And there's a logic to that. Uh, the logic is pretty straightforward. Uh, in, uh, the, uh, the point is when a state has the power to control the population by force, uh, control over opinion isn't all that important, but you can control people's behavior, you don't really care what they think. Uh, but uh, as the power to coerce declines and is lost, uh, it's necessary to turn to other devices to ensure that the ignorant masses 
won't get any funny ideas and start interfering with the management of public affairs, which are none of their business. Uh, so therefore, uh, as the state becomes more free, it's necessary to turn to more sophisticated devices to control thought, uh, to induce submission through the voluntary means associated by imposing opinion. In this sense, Hume's doctrine is more applicable to free and democratic societies than it is to military and despotic states. Now, in fact, that point really is far more general. Uh, the public has to be reduced to passivity in the political realm. That's the essential thesis of political theory of political democracy. The public has to be marginalized, and the uh, mechanisms of political democracy have to be converted somehow into empty forms if you can't use force to control the population. But uh, submissiveness also has to become a reliable trait, one that you can count on, uh, and therefore it has to be entrenched much more comprehensively. Uh, the public are to be observers, not participants. They're to be consumers of ideology as well as consumers of products. Uh, the point's made rather well by the writer Eduardo Galeano, who writes that the majority must resign itself to the consumption of fantasy. Illusions of wealth are sold to the poor, illusions of freedom to the oppressed, dreams of victory to the defeated, and of power to the weak. That's the essential point. If you can carry that off, uh, then submissiveness becomes a deeply entrenched trait, and you have a guarantee that political democracy won't have the negative effect of leading to public participation uh, in the shape of public policy, which naturally has to be avoided at all costs. Uh, I want to come back to these themes of contemporary, modern, uh, contemporary intellectual and political culture, the dominant themes, in fact. But first, let's go back a step and have a further look at these natural beliefs that are supposed to guide our conduct and our thought. Now, one such belief uh, is that there is a crucial element of essential human nature uh, that is what uh, Bakunin, anarchist thinker Bakunin, called an instinct of freedom. Now, in fact, if you think about Hume's paradox, it really arises only if you make this assumption. Uh, what Hume found surprising is the fact that this instinct for freedom is not exercised, uh, that there is willing submission. It's on the basis, the only, Hume didn't say there's an instinct for freedom, but that's the presupposition that makes his argument intelligible. There isn't such an instinct for freedom. There's no paradox. Uh, and it's, uh, so again, it's the failure to act on the instinct that Hume found surprising. That's typical Enlightenment thought, incidentally. Uh, and the same failure uh, is what inspires Rousseau's classic lament that people are born free, but they are everywhere in chains. Uh, they voluntarily accept the civil society, which is an illusion. Uh, created by the rich to guarantee their plunder. Now, there have been efforts over the years to ground this instinct for freedom in some kind of a substantive theory of human nature, and those efforts are not without interest. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on them, uh, but it's certainly true that, however interesting they may be, they come nowhere near uh, establishing <coughs> principle as a scientific principle. Uh, rather, it remains, like other tenets of common sense, it remains a kind of a regulative principle. Uh, we can adopt it or we can reject it on faith, 
uh, and which choice we make in that respect has rather significant consequences uh, for ourselves and for many others. Uh, those who, if we adopt this principle, if we adopt the common sense principle that our natural right and therefore our essential need uh, is to uh, uh, realize and pursue the instinct for freedom, if we adopt that, then we will also agree with Bertrand Russell that anarchism is the ultimate ideal to which society should approximate. We'll, in other words, accept the principle that structures of hierarchy and domination and authority are fundamentally illegitimate. They can be defended only on grounds of a contingent need. Uh, and uh, uh, that argument that there is a contingent need rarely stands up to analysis. Uh, Russell went on to observe 70 years ago that the old bonds of authority have little intrinsic merit. Reasons are needed for people to abandon their rights and the reasons offered are counterfeit reasons, convincing only for those who have a selfish interest in being convinced. The condition of revolt, he went on, uh, exists in women towards men, in oppressed nations towards their oppressors, and above all, in labor towards capital. It's a state full of danger, as all history shows, yet also full of hope. Uh, and those observations remain as valid as they were. 70 years ago. Uh, Russell himself traced this habit of submission in large part to coercive educational practice. And his views in this domain too are reminiscent of Enlightenment ideas, Enlightenment thinkers who held that the mind should not be regarded as uh, like, a, uh, like a vessel to be filled with water. It shouldn't be, I'll quote, it shouldn't be uh, filled with knowledge from without like a vessel, but it must be kindled and awake. That's James Harris, 1750, who went on to say that the growth of knowledge resembles the growth of fruit. Uh, however, external causes may in some degree cooperate. It's the internal vigor and the virtue of the tree that must ripen the juices to their just maturity. So teaching is a as a matter of creating circumstances under which the flower will grow in its own way. It's not a matter of pouring a liquid into a vessel, which is the opposite of teaching. And there are similar conceptions that underlie the Enlightenment conceptions uh, about political and intellectual freedom, and in particular about alienated labor, uh, which turns the worker into an instrument serving other ends instead of a human being, human beings fulfilling their own needs. Uh, these ideas and values also retain their power and their pertinence, and they're very remote from realization anywhere. As long as this is so, the political revolutions, the libertarian revolutions that began in the 18th century remain largely unconsummated, uh, more vision future than any, uh, uh, any achievement that has been reached. Now recall that Hume posed this paradox for both despotic societies and for more free societies. And as society becomes more free and more diverse, the task of inducing submission uh, becomes much more complex, and the problem of unraveling the mechanisms of indoctrination becomes much more intellectually interesting, uh, and also a good deal significant. 
the problem has much greater human significance as well as intellectual interest in the case of relatively free societies than the case of despotic societies for the simple reason that in that case we're talking partly from the intellectual interest because we're talking about ourselves and therefore we can act in such a way as to introduce changes. It's of course for exactly this reason that that aspect of the topic is never discussed. The topic, the aspect that is discussed is the intellectually trivial and morally insignificant question of how uh, uh, thought control is conducted in uh, totalitarian societies, despotic societies. Uh, any culture is going to try to externalize uh, people's concern, focus them on the enemy, not on ourselves, which is much more important for obvious reasons, for any moral agent at least, uh, and also in this case far more interesting. Uh, so say take George Orwell, who's famous, uh, but he's famous for Animal Farm in 1984, uh, two books which focus on the official enemy, or at least can easily be interpreted in that light. If Orwell had written novels about the much more interesting and far more significant question of thought control in relatively free and democratic societies, it wouldn't have been appreciated. Uh, and instead of uh, wide acclaim and uh, reaching the bestseller lists, uh, he would have faced the silence and the obloquy that attends uh, the raising of unacceptable questions. Uh, nevertheless, let's turn to those unacceptable but important questions. So now I want to keep willing us that are more free and more popular, like our own, uh, and ask the interesting and morally significant question uh, of why people submit when forces on their side, as it is to a large extent. Uh, Nevertheless, we do have to look at the prior question. To what extent is force really on the side of the government, government even in free and uh, democratic societies? Now, societies are considered free and democratic within our ideological constraints if the state has limited power to coerce. So they say, take the United States. It's unusual in this respect. Maybe the limits of the contemporary spectrum more than anywhere else in the world, the citizen is free from the threat of state coercion. Uh, at least that's true of the relatively privileged citizen. And in a rich society, that's a pretty substantial part of the population. So it would be absurd to say that a black kid in the ghetto is free from state coercion, in fact, living in a totalitarian state. Uh, but for a large part of the population, uh, it's quite true that you don't have to be concerned with the police will uh, exert uh, violence or other forms of repression against you or the other state authorities. That's all true. And, and the same is true of articulate expression, which is largely in the hands of major corporations uh, that sell audiences to other businesses, it's called the media, uh, and they naturally reflect the interests of the owners uh, and the market. Uh, and this Next, this part of the nexus of power is closely connected to uh, political power. Uh, furthermore, by quite familiar mechanisms, private power sets very narrow limits on government. Now, again, the United States is kind of unusual in this respect. Uh, among the industrial democracies, it's at the limits, uh, maybe at the very limit, uh, in terms of safeguards of freedom from state repression. Uh, but it's also at the limits, maybe at the very limit, in the poverty of its political life. 
And I think these two things correlate. Uh, as the power of the state doors declines, it's necessary to impoverish political life. That's a corollary almost, because that's the only way you can guarantee marginalization of the public, which again is the major aim of political democracy from the point of view of uh, the liberal elites who design it and the powers that they represent. Uh, so for example, in the United States, there's, the United States is unusual among the industrial democracies in that there's literally one political party only with two factions called the Democrats and the Republicans. It's the business party uh, and shifting coalitions of investors uh, who form uh, and decide to form a, another of those candidate producing organizations every few years. These shifting coalitions of invest investors and their interests, uh, they, they are his that history is a large part of American political history long time, probably since early 19th century. Now unions and other popular organizations might in principle offer the general population a way of participating in uh, uh, forming and implementing policy, but uh, those structures barely exist in the United States. Uh, the ideological system is also very narrowly bounded, bounded by a narrow consensus of the privileges. Uh, elections are held, but they're largely a ritual form. Uh, in congressional elections, for example, the particular maybe a third of the population votes, uh, and uh, virtually all incumbents have returned to office in the last congressional elections. 98% of the incumbents were returned to office. That's less turnover than in the Politburo. And <laughs> that reflects the vacuity of the political system. It means that whatever people are voting for is not any issue. Uh, the, uh, in the presidential elections, there isn't even a pretense anymore that, uh, that some substantive uh, issue is at stake. So black, take a look at the last couple of elections and political commentators, they sort of soberly discuss what's going on. They, they raise the question whether you know, Reagan will be able to remember his lines in the televised debate, or whether Mondale will be gloomy, or whether Dukakis will be able to duck slime that's being thrown at him by uh, Republican Party strategists, and so on. Those are the issues. Uh, half the population doesn't bother to push the buttons. Uh, and of those who do vote, it's striking that the majority consciously vote against their interests. That is, they hope that the legislative program of the candidate they're voting for won't be enacted. Now, these tendencies were all accelerated during the Reagan years. Uh, and it's an interesting political phenomenon. Uh, the population overwhelmingly opposed Reagan's programs throughout by very large margins. Uh, and among the Reagan voters, as people actually voted for him, which is about you know, under a third of the population of the electorate, uh, among the voters for Reagan, by about three to two, they hoped that his legislative program would not be enacted. Uh, in the 1980 elections, about 4% of the population of, uh, identified themselves as uh, real conservatives during Reagan, because they're real conservatives uh, among the electorate. In 1984, the percentage of the electorate who preferred a real conservative was 1%. Now, in American political rhetoric, that's called a landslide triumph for the conservatives. Uh, furthermore, contrary to uh, a lot of pretense, uh, Reagan was not a particularly popular president. Uh, in fact, uh, his 
personal popularity, which was highly touted by the media, was about at the norm for presidents never reached uh, the levels that Kennedy or Eisenhower reached. In fact, it never reached the level that it never reached the low, his highest popularity never reached the lowest level that George Bush has fallen to. And Bush came into office as the most unpopular candidate in American history of polls in the take. Now, this is all media hype, but this is about the popularity. It's popular among the elites, but not among the population. Uh, the uh, public, the general public, seemed to understand pretty well what the truth was, that he was simply a media creation, you know, the foggiest idea of what government policy was supposed to be. Uh, and it's not noteworthy that that fact is now tacitly conceded, even by the intellectual elites who had concocted the tale of uh, you know, the Reagan revolution and the great communicator uh, for eight years was it served their purposes. Rather striking that the day when the great communicator was no longer needed to read the lines written for him by the rich folk, as he'd been doing most of his life, he disappeared. So, for example, nobody would dream of asking, and Reagan's supposed to inaugurate a great revolution which changed American life, uh, but no, nobody would dream of going to ask him his opinion about any topic because everybody knows, as they always knew, that he doesn't have any opinion. His job was to read the lines. Uh, the public understood that. The intellectuals pretended not to understand it, or may have actually not understood it. They usually are the most indoctrinated and uh, least intelligent part of the population, which is natural because their role was to be the commissars, uh, to impose the ideology, and it's one of your jobs to sort of believe what you're saying. Uh, so here's the great standard bearer for conservative cause to change society, and the minute he was no longer needed, he totally disappeared. Now in Japan, they don't quite understand that, but he went to Japan uh, recently, they tried to arrange a press conference for him, and he refused, of course, and everybody in the United States understood why there wasn't anybody there to prep him for it, you know, to tell him what lines to memorize and so on, so obviously he couldn't have a press conference, uh, but the Japanese didn't quite seem to get Point. They don't understand the Western mind exactly, the curious Western mind, uh, and they were kind of confused by the fact that all they wanted to do was look at uh, you know, golf courses and so on. They uh, got 20 years to figure out how this stuff works, but you know, we get the same thing here uh, not too far in the future. Uh, the United States then made a long step forward towards marginalizing the public, uh, and that essentially happened during the 1980s in the United States. It came very close to happening. And again, as the most advanced and the most sophisticated of the industrial democracies, uh, the United States has often led the way in uh, devising effective means to control the domestic enemy, the general public. Uh, and I would imagine that this latest inspiration will uh, also be mimicked elsewhere in Europe, for example, with the usual lag. Uh, even when issues do arise in the political system, which is rare, properly, uh, the concentration of effective power uh, has a, you know, very narrowly limits the threat, and again, this is permitted. Uh, if government policies are designed which private capital finds unwelcome, uh, everybody knows what the consequences are, and you see it in countries that really have a functioning democratic system, like some of the Latin American countries, for example, uh, as there are programs that enter into the political system that aren't 
reflect, that don't, don't immediately reflect the interests of private power happen sometimes. And the consequences are well known. Uh, either you have a military coup, in which case it's over, uh, or else uh, uh, you have something that is equally effective, uh, capital flight, uh, disinvestment, a decline in business confidence. Uh, the people who own the society and therefore determine what happens in it just let it grind down. Uh, and political power has to go back to its natural course of serving private interests, no matter who's in charge. I'm in charge. Anybody's in charge. You've got to do that. You have a choice. Either you let the society collapse because the people who own and run it aren't going to do it unless you serve their interests, uh, or else you bend and you accept their interests as the public interests. Those are essentially the choices. Uh, to put the basic point rather crassly, but accurately, uh, the, the fact is that unless the rich and the powerful are satisfied, Everybody suffers. Uh, and the reason why everybody suffers is because the rich and the powerful control the basic social levers and they will decide. Uh, they will decide how much, how many crumbs filter down to their subjects. So uh, for the homeless in the streets, the highest priority must be to ensure that the rich people are satisfied in their mansions. Uh, then there's at least a chance that something will trickle down to them. If the rich aren't satisfied in their mansions, the thing is going to decline and collapse, and there'll be nothing left for the homeless in the streets. Uh, that's the uh, basic mechanism of control in state capitalist societies, quite apart from the fact that the people with resources generally run the, uh, uh, the government anyhow for obvious reasons, just as they run the uh, ideological system again for obvious reasons. And these factors, when you think them through, they very narrowly eliminate the, uh, uh, and they, they kind of diminish Hume's paradox. It means that the extent to which forces on the side of the government is quite limited, at least in a well-functioning capitalist democracy, in which the general public is uh, scattered and disorganized. Uh, nevertheless, still having said that, there still is a problem, still is a serious problem. Hume, I think, is quite right on the residue right to stress the fact that control of the thought is a major factor in suppressing the natural belief of common sense, the natural beliefs of common sense, and therefore ensuring uh, submission to power. And now, of course, the general public is not supposed to understand this, or that would undermine the goal. But elites have long been very well aware of it. All of this is quite self-conscious in the elite intellectual culture. It's been understood articulated and discussed for centuries that if obedience cannot be assured by the bludgeon, then you've got to subvert democracy by other means. And I think it's worth, let me take some time now to take a bit of a look at how these concerns have been articulated over the years, since in fact the 17th century. Uh, they become a real live issue in the 17th century during the first modern libertarian democratic revolutions in England. That's when Libertarian groups represented the first great outburst of democratic thought in history, but one historian puts it quite accurately. And this expression of the instinct for freedom, the major, first major one in modern times, uh, that at once raised the problem of how to contain the freedom. Now, the libertarian ideas of the uh, radical Democrats of the period were considered quite outrageous uh, by respectable people. They favored universal education, guaranteed health care, 
democratization of a law, which one of them described as a fox with poor men and geese. Uh, he pulls off their feathers and feeds upon them. Uh, they developed a kind of liberation theology. Uh, one critic observed ominously that they, this liberation theology preached seditious doctrine to the people and aimed to raise the rascal multitude against all men of best quality in the kingdom to draw them into associations and combinations with one another against all lords, gentry, ministers, lawyers, rich and peaceable men. Uh, the problem was that the rabble didn't want to be ruled by either king or parliament. The civil war was king and parliament, but the rabble didn't want either of them. Uh, they wanted to be ruled, as they put it, by countrymen like ourselves that know our wants. And their pamphlets explain further that it will never be a good world while knights and gentlemen make us laws that are chosen for fear and do but oppress us and know not the people's sores. Now, ideas of that sort naturally appalled the men of best quality. Uh, particularly frightening to them were these itinerant preachers and mechanics traveling around the country preaching freedom and democracy, and the agitators that are stirring up the rascal multitude, and the printers who are putting out pamphlets questioning authority and questioning its mysteries. Uh, the questioning the mysteries was, in fact, one of the worst crimes. Uh, one commentator warned that there can be no form of government without its proper mysteries. Uh, and these mysteries, he said, have to be concealed from the common folk. Uh, that's essentially the message of Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor. And like him, the same observer went on to stress that ignorance and admiration arising from ignorance are the parents of civil devotion uh, and obedience. He said, the radical Democrats have cast all the mysteries and secrets of government before the vulgar, like pearls before swine, and have made the people so curious and so arrogant that they will never find humility enough to submit to a civil rule. Uh, another commentator observed that it's dangerous to have a people know their own strength. Uh, after the Democrats were defeated, uh, in about 20 years, John Locke wrote that Day laborers and tradesmen, spinsters and dairy maids must be told what to believe. The greatest part cannot know, and therefore they must believe. And these ideas have ample residence up till the present day. Uh, like John Milton and other civil libertarians of the period, Locke had a very sharply limited conception of freedom of expression and personal freedom. Uh, he thought you should bar, quoting from him, you should bar those who speak anything in their religious assembly irreverently or seditious uh, of the government or government or of state matters. In fact, Locke held that the common people should be denied the right even to discuss public affairs. Uh, you don't get this in his political essays, but you see it in his actions as a civil servant, as a colonial civil servant. And in that capacity, for example, he wrote the, some of the constitutions Colonies. He wrote the uh, fundamental constitution of Carolina. If you look at it, you find, quoting it, that all manner of comments and expositions on any parts of these constitutions or on any part of the common or statute laws of the Carolines are absolutely prohibited. In other words, the people in this democratic country are not allowed to talk about policy. That's Locke's concept of liberty. Uh, as Locke's a great hero of 
liberally, uh, when he drafted reasons uh, Locke did oppose censorship in 1694, long after the Democrats had been defeated, uh, he drafted reasons in Parliament for banning censorship. But if you look at what he wrote, he offered no defense of freedom of expression whatsoever. He only offered considerations of expediency and commercial advantage. Uh, and with the threat of democracy thankfully overcome and the libertarian rabble defeated and suppressed, censorship was permitted to lapse in England in 1695. And the reason, as Christopher Hill points out, is because opinion formers censored themselves. Nothing got into print which frightened them out of property. Now, the concerns that were aroused by the 17th century Democrats were not entirely new. In fact, uh, you go find such concerns way back to Herodotus, at least. Herodotus wrote about how people who had struggled to gain their freedom became once more subject to autocratic government through the acts of able and ambitious leaders who introduced for the first time the ceremonial of royalty, creating a legend that the leader was a being of a different order from mere men who must be shrouded in mystery uh, and leaving the affair of government vulgar uh, for those who are entitled to manage. Uh, during the 17th century revolutions, the supporters of the parliament and the army against the people, that was the real battle for Michael's king, uh, the supporters of the parliament and the army against the people uh, argued that the rabble uh, couldn't be trusted with their own affairs. And in fact, they offered a proof. The proof was, first of all, that the rabble had their own ideas. They had lingering monarchist sentiments and they also were reluctant to place their affairs in the hands of the gentry and the army, who were described as truly the people. That is described that way by the gentry and the army. Uh, the people, in their foolishness, didn't see that point. They didn't agree with it. Uh, the mass of the people were described by spokesmen of the parliament as the giddy multitude, beasts in men's shape. It's proper to suppress them, just as it's proper to save the life of a lunatic distracted person even against his will. If the people are so depraved and corrupt as to confer places of power and trust upon wicked and undeserving men, uh, they forfeit their power uh, in this behalf unto those who are good, uh, though but a few, us, us guys in other words. Uh, the good and the few may be the gentry uh, or the industrialists, or they may be the vanguard party in the central committee, or they may be the intellectuals who qualify as experts, uh, quote one of Henry Kissinger's insights, uh, they qualify as experts because they know how to articulate the consensus of the power, uh, and they then are allowed to manage the business empire, the ideological institutions, and political structures, or to serve them at various levels. They are the good of the few, and they have the right to rule, not the lunatic and depraved giddy multitude, obviously. In fact, their task is to keep the giddy multitude in a state of implicit submission uh, and therefore to bar the great prospect of freedom and self-determination. In fact, that's the history of the domestic battle against the domestic enemies of the modern democracies. And exactly the same ideas were extended uh, uh, overseas. So when the Spanish uh, discovered America, as we put it, in 1492, discovered America in the same sense that I discovered Glasgow 
days ago. But in our primitive culture, we call that the discovery of America. Uh, they justified uh, their attack against uh, their control over the uh, barbarians who they discovered there on the same grounds that those are uh, lunatics and depraved people, and therefore for their own interests we have to control them. Uh, when the English savages took over the task of genocide shortly afterwards, uh, they gave the same arguments. They had to, uh, as George Washington put it, they had to control the wolves in the shape of men who were roaming around uh, there and claiming to run and run affairs in England and depraved uh, lunatics in, uh, uh, in England who tried to oppose the rule of Parliament. Uh, the uh, British carrying out these tasks of genocide and uh, instituting what one recent historian called the 500-year right uh, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, they already had practice. They had tried out these measures and applied them uh, in uh, controlling the uh, Celtic population around the periphery, and they were also described as wild men and beasts, the Irish and the Scots. Uh, and the same people, in fact, did it. Uh, Lord Cumberland, who was known as the Butcher, because of his laying waste of much of Scotland, uh, transferred his skills over to North America uh, right afterwards and applied them there to these uh, wild men and beasts uh, on that side. And all of that was for the benefit of the people that they were attacking because they were on the same grounds. They were lunatic and depraved people, and you can't allow them to run their own affairs. They're incapable of it. In fact, they're not even people. They're beasts who look like men. Uh, after the uh, successors of the, uh, their successors had cleansed the continent of uh, the pernicious growth, uh, as Cotton Mather described the people there, sending people there after they'd finished that, about 150 years later, they turned elsewhere, and the Indian fighters went over to the Philippines to take care of the uh, wild beasts there, uh, and they were going to civilize them. They, in fact, uh, succeeded in accelerating the ascent to heaven of about 600,000 of them within a few years. And exactly the same rhetoric was used. We have to do it. Uh, we have to, as the New York Press described it, we have to slaughter the natives in the English style, uh, an accurate description. And after we've slaughtered the natives in the English style, we can then bring them to understand our good intentions after they've recognized the strength of our arms. That's the history of European savagery, is the plague civilization spread over the world, destroying everything in its path. Uh, and it goes right back to the same ideas that are expressed domestically by 17th century intellectuals, expressed explaining why the depraved and lunatic rabble have to be controlled for their own good. Now on the home front, the basic problem coming back to England in the 17th century, the home front, the basic idea was explained by a respected 17th century political thinker. Uh, he said that the proposals of the radical Democrats, rather, would result in ignorant persons, neither of learning nor fortune, being put in authority. Given their freedom, the self-opinionated multitude would elect the lowest of the people, who would occupy themselves with milking and gelding the purses of the rich, taking the ready road to all licentiousness, mischief, mere anarchy, and confusion. So we can't have that. Well, apart from the rhetorical flourishes, the sentiments are quite standard, uh, and they run right up to the present day to the features of They are the features of contemporary political and intellectual discourse, 
and that increasingly so, as the popular struggles did ultimately succeed over the centuries in realizing some of the proposals of radical Democrats, and that's a consequence that this pathological situation required ever more intensive efforts and sophisticated means to reduce the subsequent substantive content of these achievements uh, and to institute new measures of uh, subjugation of authority. That's again in political history. Well, problems of that kind typically arise in 17th century England. They typically arise in periods of turmoil and uh, social revolution. For example, during the American Revolution, exactly the same issues arose. Uh, during the American Revolution, or rather right after the American Revolution succeeded, uh, rebellious and independent farmers in New England, for example, had to be taught by force uh, that the ideals that had been expressed in the pamphlets of the revolution were not intended seriously. The common people, in other words, were not to be ruled by, not to be represented by countrymen like themselves that know the people's sword. They were to be represented by gentry and merchants, and lawyers, and uh, others who served private power. Uh, the reigning doctrine, which was expressed by the exalted founding fathers, John Jay in this case, was that the people who own the country ought to govern it. That's the way it ought to work, and that's the way it's going to work. And these <laughs> independent farmers don't understand that, uh, and they believe all this nonsense we were writing in these revolutionary pamphlets, they have to be taught by force, and they were suppression of Jay's Rebellion and others. Uh, in the 19th century, the rise of corporations, uh, and in particular the legal structures that were devised, which in, in an effort, a successful effort to grant them dominance over social and political life, uh, that introduced new forms of subjugation, and in fact it reinforced and really established the victory of the Federalist uh, opponents of uh, popular democracy in a new and more powerful form, and it set the framework for modern American political democracy. Uh, quite regularly, revolutionary struggles hit several aspirants for power against one another, but they're, they're typically united in opposition to the, to the people, the general population, which is inspired by these traditions, all typically inspired by these radical democratic tendencies. Uh, the Russian Revolution, case in point, the Russian Revolution was actually a coup, uh, the Bolshevik coup in 1917. Uh, in, after that coup, Trotsky, uh, at, shortly after they seized state power and this coup in this labor revolution, uh, the first thing that they did was to move, dismantle uh, all the popular structures. They dismantled the factory councils, they essentially dismantled the Soviets, uh, and the point was to overcome any unwelcome socialist tendencies which reflected the interests of the radical Democrats. Now, Lenin himself was an orthodox Marxist, and he didn't believe that socialism was even possible in these backward, semi-developed countries. It was kind of a theory behind it. But it was, that's what happened. Socialism, any incipient tendency towards socialism was totally destroyed by Lenin and Trotsky shortly after the revolution, not in the context of the Civil War, but for principled reasons. And that's another reflection of the standard elite doctrine towards the radical uh, who have these crazy ideas about running their own affairs. Uh, in what I've always thought is his most important book, his greatest work, George Orwell described uh, the same process going on in Spain, where the uh, liberal democracies and the fascists and the communists cooperated 
in destroying the libertarian popular revolution, and only after they had jointly crushed it, they turned to the secondary question of deciding how to divide up the spoils uh, among the victors uh, against the population. Uh, and there are many other examples, often influenced by great power intervention. This is particularly true in the Third World. Uh, there's a persistent concern of Western elites that popular organizations might arise and might lay the basis for meaningful democracy and social reform, and that's unacceptable. It would threaten the prerogatives of the privileged, but even more dangerous, uh, in the terminology of US planners, the rot might spread. That is, there could be a demonstration effect of successful development, uh, and the uh, 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 internal documents and even public record reveal that a driving concern of US policy, quite naturally, uh, has always been the fear of what's called the virus of democracy and social reform might spread elsewhere, infecting others. Uh, and that's what inspired the, just about every intervention, first major post-war intervention, counterinsurgency operation in Greece in the late 1940s, the moves to undermine and destroy the European labor movement at about the same time, the US invasion of South Vietnam, the overthrow of the democratic governments of Chile and Guatemala, the attack against Nicaragua, the violent attack against the popular movements elsewhere in Central America in the last decade, case that's the logic. Uh, and they didn't invent it. Very similar fears were expressed by European statesmen at the time of the American Revolution. So uh, Metternich warned that the American Revolution might lend new strength to the apostles of sedition, and it might spread the contagion and invasion of vicious principles, such as the pernicious doctrines of republican and republicanism and popular self-rule one of the czar's diplomats warned at the time. Uh, a century later, the cast of characters was reversed, but the same doctrines were expressed. This time they were expressed by Woodrow Wilson and his Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, with regard to the Bolsheviks. Same doctrines that the czar expressed with regard to the threat of democracy in the United States a century earlier. Uh, Wilson's Secretary of State warned that if the Bolshevik disease were to spread, it would leave the ignorant and incapable mass of humanity uh, dominant in the earth. He said that the Bolsheviks were appealing to the ignorant and mentally deficient, who by their numbers uh, are urged to become masters, which is a very real danger in view of the process of social unrest throughout the world. Notice as always, it's democracy that's the threat. Uh, in Germany at that time, soldiers and workers' councils made a brief appearance, and I was even more frightening. Uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, feared that they would inspire, he said, dangerous thoughts among American Negro soldiers returning from abroad. And he uh, had heard, he said, that Negro laundresses are demanding more than the going wage, uh, saying that the money is as much mine as it is yours. Uh, businessmen, he thought, might have to adjust to having workers on their boards of directors, among other disasters if the Bolshevik virus were to spread. Well, with these dire consequences in mind, the uh, Western intervention in the Soviet Union was justified in defensive terms then and up till today in diplomatic history as a defense against the challenge that uh, the Bolsheviks raised to the existence of the uh, uh, capitalist order. Uh, and it was also necessary to develop to, to parallel uh, moves had to be taken to 
defend the civilized world at home. Uh, Secretary of State Lansing explained that force must be used to prevent the leaders of Bolshevism and anarchy from proceeding to organize and preach against government in the United States. And the Wilson administration launched a major repression, which uh, was quite successful in undermined democratic politics, unions, freedom of press, uh, and independent thought generally in the interests of tribal power. This was all supported by intellectual opinion and political elites and so on. Uh, much the same story was reenacted after World War II uh, for the same reasons, again, under the pretext of the Soviet threat, in reality, uh, to ensure submission to the rules. Same issue arose in the 1960s, the, the revival of the ignorant rabble of independent thought. And that led to the same response, the Trilateral Commission, which brings together uh, elites from Europe, uh, Japan, and the United States, liberal elites, side of the power system. Uh, they held a major conference on what they called the crisis of democracy. Uh, and the crisis was that it was what they called an excess of democracy and it was posing a threat to the unhampered rule of the privilege and the power. That's what's called democracy in political theology. And the problem was the usual one. The rabble were organizing. Uh, they were trying to gain control of their own affairs. They were trying to enter the political arena. Uh, none of that was acceptable. They were organizing efforts among young people and women and ethnic minorities who were always rabble. Uh, and uh, what was needed, the commission said, was more moderation in democracy, a uh, return to the good old days when Truman had enabled the government country with the cooperation of a relatively small number of Wall Street lawyers and bankers. The American records are close. That's when he had democracy and its problems. Uh, uh, well, that's the liberal side. Go to the conservative side of the political spectrum, essentially the same opinions. There's conservative contempt for democracy is uh, well articulated by British historians who was in Europe. He writes that there's no free will in the thinking and actions of the masses any more than in the revolutions of the planets, in the migration of birds, in the plunging of horses and lemmings into the sea. Uh, only disaster would ensue uh, if these people were permitted to enter the arena of decision making in a meaningful way. The leading neoconservative intellectual in the United States, Irving Kristol, adds that insignificant nations, like insignificant people, can quickly experience delusions of significance. And he says so you've got to drive the history much to the delight of the state worshippers who mislabeled conservatives and modern Orwellian rhetoric. Uh, they established what was called the Office of Public Diplomacy, uh, the goal of which was to demonize the Sandinistas, as one high official put it, uh, and to mobilize support for the U.S. terror states. Uh, one of them, when this was exposed, uh, one high official described it as the kind of operation that's carried out in enemy territory. And that's a very apt phrase, expresses lucidly the attitude of elites toward the public. They're an enemy. Domestic enemy, they've got to be suppressed. You can't do it by force, you've got to do it by control of opinion. Uh, as popular movements have deepened their roots, as they indeed have, and spread into new sectors of society during the ninth, since the 60s, they were in fact able to drive the state underground to clandestine operations. The reason was that the ignorant rabble was not completely 
subdued. Well, in this case, that's not the case of this. Uh, the point to be stressed, I won't give any more history right now, uh, despite all efforts to contain them, uh, the problem is that the rabble continue to fight for their rights. They have suppressed the instinct for freedom. And in time, uh, libertarian ideals have, to some extent, been at least partially realized. Some of them have even become common coin. So many of the outrageous ideas of the 17th century radical Democrats uh, who pretended to be counterparts of what we would call liberal intellectuals at the time, many of them seem tame enough today, although many of the other early insights remain as far from realization as ever. Um, the, uh, let me go on a little bit with the contemporary period. The fears that were expressed by the manifest quality in the 17th century They've been a major theme of intellectual discourse in the 20th century, uh, and of corporate practice as well, and of social sciences. So for example, the leading moralist and political thinker, Reinhold Niebuhr, who was much revered by George Kennan and the Kennedy intellectuals and others called official establishment theologian uh, in the United States, he wrote that rationality belongs to the cool observers common person follows not reason, but faith. Uh, and the cool observers, us smart guys, uh, must recognize the stupidity of the average man and provide the necessary illusions and the emotionally potent oversimplifications that'll keep the naive simpletons on course. Uh, very much as in 1650, uh, so also in 1950, it's necessary to protect, to protect the lunatic or distracted person reading the rabble from their own depraved and corrupt judgments. That's the thesis of political democracy, is that you don't allow a three-year-old across the street tomorrow. Uh, and in accordance with these prevailing conceptions, notice there is no infringement on democracy if a few corporations uh, and the government that they also control, if they control the information system. In fact, that's the essence of democracy, followed by logic. Uh, in the annals of the American Academy of uh, Political and Social Science, the leading figure of the public relations industry in the United States, Edward Bernays, explained that the very essence of the democratic process is the freedom to persuade and suggest what he calls the engineering of consent. And naturally, that freedom to persuade happens to be concentrated in few hands, but that's just and right, because they're the good and few who are engineering consent among the ignorant rabble. Uh, uh, from the early 20th century, the public relations industry has devoted its task to what it calls educating the American people about the economic facts of life to ensure a favorable climate for business. Its task, it said, is to control the public mind, which is the only serious danger confronting the company, AT&T executive, 80 years ago. And today, a couple of weeks ago, you can read the Wall Street Journal describing with great enthusiasm the concerted efforts of corporate America to change the attitudes and values of workers on a vast scale with new age workshops and other contemporary devices of indoctrination uh, to convert worker apathy into corporate allegiance. Again, quite astounding. Uh, US journalists uh, have also uh, understood, suspecting intelligent minorities have always understood uh, Walter Lippmann, the leading American journalist, described a revolution in the practice of democracy, 1920, 
as the manufacture of consent has become a self-conscious art and a regular organ of popular government. And as he said, it's right and necessary because the common interests largely elude public opinion entirely and can be managed only by a specialized class, again, a smart guy. The public, he said, must be put in its place uh, so that we can live free of the trampling and the roar of the bewildered herd. Uh, the bewildered herd has a role. Their role is to be the interested spectators of action, but not participants. We're the participants. We run it. They're, they watch. Uh, in the uh, International Encyclopedia of Social Sciences, a very influential political scientist, Harold Laswell, explained that we should not succumb to democratic dogmatisms about men being the best judges of their own interests. They're not the best judges of the elites, and they have to be ensured the means to impose their will, again, for the common good. If social arrangements deny them, the mechanisms to do this by force, then he said they have to turn to a whole new technique of control, largely through propaganda, because of the ignorance and superstition of the mass. Uh, similar ideas are expressed in Europe all the time. So for example, in 1943, a South African Prime Minister, uh, a, a Smuts, young Christian Smuts, explained to his close friend, Vincent Churchill, uh, that with talking about Europe, that with politics let loose among those peoples, we may have a wave of disorder and wholesale communism uh, going all over Europe. And Churchill's conception was that the government of the world as it were, should be in the hands of rich men dwelling in peace within their habitations, uh, men who had no reason to seek anything more and thus could keep the peace, uh, excluding the hungry and the ambitious. Home. Same problems arise today in Europe. Uh, here in Europe, we are heightened by the fact that, unlike the United States, uh, Europe has not yet, European variety of state capitalism has not yet completely succeeded in eliminating labor unions and political organizations uh, and restricting politics to factions of the business class. Uh, and these impediments to proper functioning of democracy, I think, help explain the. Uh, the ambivalence of European elites towards uh, Gorbachev's move towards Japan, which threatened the major means of control of the, uh, of the rascal multitude, all this bestioning system of indoctrination, has a number of casts, and some of them are kind of delicate. It has different targets. Uh, one target is the stupid and ignorant masses. That's the, uh, and, and it's something I can do with them. You have to keep them that way. Keep them stupid and ignorant. Uh, they have to be diverted with emotionally potent with oversimplifications. Uh, they have to be marginalized and isolated. The ideal circumstance for democracy is that the rascal multitude uh, should be scattered. Each person should be sitting alone uh, in front of a TV screen, watching sports, sitcoms, or soap operas, or something like that, without any organizational resources uh, that might permit individuals uh, who lack personal resources to learn who they are and form ideas in association with others, and even worse, to begin to implement them and to put them forth in the social <coughs> political arena. Uh, the bewildered herd, in other words, they're the proper target of the real mass media uh, and also of a public education system. 
which is geared to the task of imposing basic skills, skills that are needed to be powerful, uh, including the skill of subjugation and obedience, and of course, repeating patriotic slogans on a media occasion. Now, the problem of indoctrination also exists for the cool observers, uh, or the smart guy, uh, but that's a little bit different. There's a sector of the population which is expected to participate in serious decision-making. They have to do the work for the power. Uh, they have to manage the business and ideological and political institutions. And for these sectors, the intellectuals, the articulate sectors, there are other problems. Uh, they have to internalize the values of value the system. That's crucial. And they have to share the necessary illusions that permit the system to function in the interests of concentrated power and privilege. But they also have to have a certain grasp of the realities of the world. Otherwise, the decisions that they make in their managerial capacity may not be conducive to the needs of private power. Now, that's a tricky matter. Uh, the elite media and the elite educational institutions have to kind of steer a course between these conflicting needs, imposing indoctrination and belief in necessary illusions, but still making it possible for these people to manage effectively in the interests of their masters. Uh, and how to deal with those dilemmas is not so simple. It's intriguing to see how it's done, but that's another topic. Well, let me end finally by stressing what I think is a crucial point. Uh, the instinct for freedom can be dulled and often is dulled, but it has yet to be killed. Uh, the courage and dedication of people who struggle for their rights and for their freedom and their willingness to endure extreme state of terror uh, and violence, that's often pretty amazing. You see plenty of it today. Uh, and over the years, over the centuries, there has been a slow growth of consciousness, and certain goals have been achieved that were considered utopian or even scarcely contemplated uh, in earlier years. Now, an inveterate optimist might look at that historical record and uh, express on the basis of it, express the hope that with a new decade and soon a new century, humanity may be able to overcome some of its dire social malady. Others could look at the same record and draw quite a different lesson. Uh, and it's very hard to see rational grounds, I don't see rational grounds for affirming one or the other perspective, as always in the case of the natural beliefs that guide our lives, it ultimately becomes a matter of faith. In fact, in this case, I don't think we can do, at least by legacy, we can't do any better than affirming a kind of Pascal's wager. We have two choices. We can deny the instinct for freedom. Uh, we can deny that it exists. And we can therefore prove uh, that human beings are a lethal mutation, evolutionary dead end. Or we can nurture the instinct for freedom if indeed it is real. Uh, and in doing so, we may find ways to deal with dreadful human tragedy and problems 